Okay, my first question is, uh, <clears throat> what do you regard, right off the top of your head, without thinking about it too much, as the peak achievement of Raquel Welch in her illustrious career, which mainly spanned the 60s and 70s? Um, she... Right off the top of your head. No, I mean, thinking. listen, she was one of the most beautiful women who ever lived. It's really just that. I mean, it's... It, I, you know, they just don't make them like that anymore. You know what I mean? Like, they just don't make mm -hmm. women like that. And she is hugely influential to my mom, who was like a sex symbol, beauty queen type. And to me, mm -hmm. to every woman, like, you know, everybody wanted to be Raquel Welsh. But I think I remember her most, obviously, you know, the movie that everybody remembers her in. But she was also quite influential in the film The Shawshank Redemption. Because she it was... was? Well, yeah, she was the one of the posters. See, that movie is like different pinup girls take the place. Oh, I'm of, sorry. Of course, yeah. And she's one of them. So, you know, I always mm. remember it fondly because of that. Okay. Um, you, but in terms of what she actually did on screen, you're kind of, we're all kind of limited because there's only one film I submit, I just wrote this, that she was really good in or she was... You know, she she really like understood what she was doing and she was confident. And it was a, the best film she ever made, the mm. best film she was ever part of. Now, she wasn't the star, but she was part of it. And it was easily the best film of that whole period. And that's Richard Lester's The Three Musketeers, in which she right. played uh, Lady Bonazou. And she was Michael York's kind of girlfriend. And it wasn't like a senior role. wasn't She wasn't the lead, but she was really good at it. No question about it. And she was a good sport. She got knocked over by things. It was kind of a slapsticky thing. Mm -hmm. So I really, really liked her in that. And, and you can watch that film, and it's really got it. It's really a good, very, understands itself, and it's and it's and it's dry, Lester-esque slapstick, and it's very good, very, very, very good watch. And it, but when you get beyond that, when you look at all the other films that she. Uh, was very prominent in like 100 Rifles with Jim Brown and mm. uh, obviously My Myra Breckenridge, which I presume you saw um, back in the day. Did you? Probably. I don't remember. Maybe. Can't remember it? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> uh, she was a two, there was a two, a person with two personalities. One was played by Rex Reed and the other was by Raquel Welch. They're more or less the same person. And, uh, you know, there was um, The Last of Sheila, that she was famous mm -hmm. for having been a real behind-the-scenes bitch when they made it in, in Europe. Um, James Mason and others said what an unpleasant person she was. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I didn't know she was an unpleasant person. I mean, really, they, they, they went on the record and the whole thing. Wow. You know, he, uh, um, um, Herbert Ross, the director, you know, bad marks. Anyway, she's uh, pretty interesting, and there's no, uh, dis dis but she just didn't have the luck. She she was too much on the sex symbol train, if you will. Yeah. They just didn't want to let her have uh, a shot at doing something interesting, except Richard Lester. Then it was really good. I didn't know she was like a, a pain in the ass. I had no idea. Um, Nor did I, until I read this Last of Sheila stuff, then I, at least that was that. That group at, at one time they had they had a problem with it. Huh. Okay. She was like Sharon Tate, you know. Like, I think that there was a time in history. I don't even know if it's true anymore. Maybe it's still true. But it used to be that if you were gorgeous, 
and you were breathtakingly mm-hmm. beautiful, someone's going to put you on camera and put you in a movie. And it didn't matter if you could act or not. It was just the idea was, uh, you know, my daughter and I have this this saying, we say pretty monkeys, because like primates just like to look at the pretty monkeys. It's true, like in try, you know, monkeys and gorillas, they and chimps, they, they actually admire beauty within their mm-hmm. little, you know, families or whatever. And, and humans are, are primates. And so, you know, Emma mm-hmm. and I always, you know, the phenomenon of pretty monkeys, which is that people just like to look at pretty people. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the whole basis for film. Uh, the reason we sit there and watch, you know, a movie that lasts two hours is because we're staring at a beautiful person. And we love to look at them. And the camera, especially Hitchcock or whatever, they, you know, Hitchcock was a master at playing with that impulse because he knew that we wanted to see not just mm-hmm. pretty people, but we wanted to see them doing things, you know, that were intriguing and uh, illicit sometimes and mysterious. And, you know, right. Vertigo is obviously about that. But uh, but Raquel Welch is, is mm-hmm. one of those. Just put her on screen so we can sit there in the dark for two hours and stare at her. You know, let us look at her face and a her progressive, body. A progressive woman, as you well know, would respond to you and say, well, that's kind of demeaning, isn't it, Sasha? I mean, <laughs> after all, this is a woman probably capable of a lot more than the industry was willing to give her in her heyday. Now, she went with it and ran with it and, you know, did pretty well. But, you know, you know what I'm saying. She's, uh, she, whatever she might have had, to give as a comedian, perhaps as a dramatic actress, who knows? Mm. Whatever she, the industry wasn't particularly interested in 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 hearing it or or, or trying it out or giving it a well, we experimenting always, with her because they just liked that she was beautiful. Right, you and I always joke about or talk about that wonderful scene in Wolf where Jack Nicholson is talking to Michelle Pfeiffer, you know, about being pretty and that the only reason anybody would bother with a pain in the ass like her is because she's so beautiful. So what do you do? Why do you care? I don't. I was just making polite conversation. I'd rather not discuss what I do. You know, I think I understand what you like now. You're very beautiful, and you think men are only interested in you because you're beautiful. But you want them to be interested in you because you're you. The problem is that aside from all that beauty, you're not very interesting. You're rude. You're hostile. You're sullen. You're withdrawn. I know you want someone to look past all that at the real person underneath but the only reason that anyone would bother to look past all that is because you're beautiful. Ironic, isn't it? In an odd way, you're your own problem. Sorry. Wrong line. I am not taken aback by your keen insight and suddenly challenged by you. Shall we have the rest of our milk in the living room? And, you know, the thing is, is is, Mm -hmm. uh, I understand that, like, for instance, Michelle Pfeiffer never liked it that she was just Mm -hmm. a pretty face. She always wanted to be taken more seriously and have more, more, you know, Marilyn was the same way. 
they don't really like mm-hmm. to just be objectified. They don't like to just be pretty like Margot Robbie. They're always trying to prove that they can act, even though the requirement from mm. the public is just let me just sit here for two hours and stare at you. You know, let me see your body. And no, and stare at you. Let me look at your body, you know, because okay. you can't really stare at people in real mm. life. You can't just sit there and ogle a beautiful woman. You know, you can't sit there and stare at their face and their legs and their body. You know, you have to look away or, you know, but in movies, you get that mm-hmm. chance to just sit there and stare at them, you know, and um, I think it's a gift. I mean, hell, listen, it's a genetic blessing to be beautiful like that. You know, every... Every mm. woman would want to be that pretty, you know. Anyway, there's okay. a, you wrote me about Amy Holden Jones, a screenwriter who wrote that she was not, uh, she's not a Banshees <laughs> fan, and she didn't like uh, Brendan, uh, Brendan Gleeson chopping off his fingers. She thought it was nihilistic and kind of uh, gloomy and creepy. It didn't have any, you know, she didn't care. She couldn't. Anyway, <clears throat> you said, well, you know, she do. She should try watching Deliverance, where poor Ned Beatty, is buttfucked <laughs> by a hillbilly. And that movie was in the top five of the, of the box office, not just the awards, but box oh. office in 72. Best picture nominee and for more gruesome and dark than Banshees will ever be. Yeah. And I said, and I said, we'll go after I repeat my thing. I said, I respectfully disagree. I said that the deliverance nightmare <clears throat> was about a situational culture clash. Atlanta urban guys, suburban guys watching football and having jobs with a wife and kids at home, colliding with backwoods yeehaws in the deep woods. And it was horrifying and traumatic, traumatic. But in the final analysis, it was an episode or a detour. You know, if we can get out of this, we can go back to a real world and a real life. There was always a rational world beyond the immediate horrific situation facing these four guys on a canoe trip. Banshees, I said, on the other hand was really about a state of insanity throughout the entire island. Uh, it's self, it's isolation, it's self-mutilation. It seems that the island, we, we never leave the island. We're, this is the world. The island residents have lost their minds. Gleason, in particular, had really lost his. What kind of nihilistic gloomhead, doomhead, a guy who claims he's devoted to fiddle playing and then he cuts off his fucking fingers, <laughs> even as a metaphor, it's ludicrous. And you said you misunderstand both films completely you didn't even get deliverance and that's where we left it all right so maybe you could explain well, how for, 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 first of all <clears throat> i would like to apologize and if i had the stomach to go back to your site and get into that comment section which i know is like <laughs> world war three i don't even want to go in there but i i do regret one thing that i wrote which is i said she's an idiot that wasn't a very nice thing to say and i shouldn't have said it and i regret it and i wish i could take it back and if i had the desire to go back in there and edit it out i would I don't think it's nice to call people idiots and i i definitely regret She's an accomplished woman who knows who knows her craft i know, and, you know i shouldn't have said that it was wrong yeah. of me to say and she wasn't mm-hmm. pu- right. publishing anything on a website she was simply writing a facebook status update which was her thoughts and she has every right to her opinion um and right. i i generally agree with her point i just don't agree about that particular movie i agree about what the state of the oscars are and that movies suck that's all i've been writing about for the last 10 years so i I definitely see the problem um but i just thought that i would highlight 1972 because of the fact that there are some movies that are parables that are movies that are simple stories that talk about something much much bigger and that's what these two movies are to me deliverance and banshees both 
to read them as literal mm-hmm. plots is ridiculous. I mean, it's not ridiculous. It's just you're getting it wrong, right? Like Deliverance isn't about four guys who take a river rafting and poor, poor guys raped by <laughs> by by that awful man. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that that's not the whole. Deliverance is about so much more than that. It's um, it's an incredible. Well, it's about things getting raw and demanding, and you got to survive. This is awful. This no, is that's awful. not what it's oh about. My God. Now, yeah. th- th- people say that it's that's exactly what happens. That's no, exactly it's it's not. Happens. It's it's first of all, you have to look at it within the context of 1972 overall. You have to look at where people were at the time, what they were feeling. This is post Manson murders. This is post. This is in the midst or at the end of the Vietnam War. This is at the moment when Richard Nixon was just about to win in a landslide. And you have to look at the American male. The the Perfect. reason that the 70s was such a great era for movies and for Oscar movies especially is that the antiheroes were exemplary of what was happening to the American male, but especially on the left. Because culture was about to flip right to Ronald Reagan in 198. Not culture, but he was about to take power. Um Things were falling apart. Basically. Reagan was eight years off. It was Nixon time. No, I know. But okay. 72 was the landslide win for Nixon. That was mm-hmm. a huge mm-hmm. shock to a lot of people like Warren Beatty or whatever, where they felt like the dream was dead and everything was mm-hmm. for naught. And um, and so right. these guys are very sophisticated, educated, um, and, and they're so different physically from these hillbillies. Like they're so clean. You know, they're, they've got clean teeth, nice teeth, good clothes, they're well-fed, and they're well-educated, mm-hmm. and they're nice, right? He, mm-hmm. and and so they don't, they don't, they have lost complete touch with the natural world, with the animal world, with their own primal natures, right? So when you see John Voight at the beginning, and he, and they're, they're trying to play act this wilderness game, like they go in and they play the banjo, that they try to play right. act that they know what they're doing and they're you know that they that they're so much smarter and so much more sophisticated and have so much more on the ball than these guys because they're all uneducated hillbillies right uh, inbred backwoods uh, you know mountain people and so these guys come in with a hundred percent confidence and that anybody who knows anything about the natural world these movies about survival knows one thing. If you come in with that level of hubris or confidence, you're going to be destroyed because it will get the best of you. You have to come in with a high amount of respect for things that you cannot predict or control. And so you see John Voight in particular is the film's most interesting character because he comes in and Mm -hmm. he's got this bow and arrow and he's got to shoot a deer. Right. So any man should be able to do that. Right. Big, you know, educated man from the city. But he can't Mm -hmm. do it. He chokes. He can't do it. He's too scared. So he lifts his bow. He looks at it. He shakes. He shakes. He shakes. And the deer runs away, right? So those guys mm-hmm. are put in a situation where they have to kill or be killed. And it's yeah. it's really just comes down to what are your skills? What is your courage? You know, obviously, Burt Reynolds just has no problem getting there and killing the guys, right? But then they start arguing about whether or not that was the right thing to do. And are they going to get into trouble and they have to hide this crime? And so they go from being these overconfident men to being victims, to being criminals, and then fighting for their survival at the end. So basically their asses got kicked in a situation that they could not control. It's just so interesting to me, but it's so very like the moment in history of 1972, I thought, of 
of people who, you know, mainly on the left, but just in general, this, the way that masculinity was was Mm -hmm. thought of and treated through that whole era of the 70s. Um, And then, and then, you know, so a parable, if you just said, God, you know, that movie was so weird, they just went on a raft, and they went down the river, and then this guy's like, butt fucking porn, (laughs) baby, like... That scene is so harrowing. I mean, it's just really the the thing that's so terrifying about that scene is that you know that guy's doing that to pigs. You know, he's like actually yeah. doing that to real pigs. That's how they treat the poor livestock. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. on top of everything else, there's that. You know, right? No, I'm just saying, John Voight's about to get to, like have his, this guy give him a, like be forced to give yeah. this gross, disgusting man. Mm-hmm. And they're mm-hmm. so dirty, these men. Like, can you imagine? Like, oh. Uh, well, here's the thing. Um, uh, it would be really, really interesting. In fact, uh, I'm now starting to think, did I read about an intention to remake Deliverance in the current context? Sometime within the last maybe five years, maybe six years. I'm not sure, but I, I, a little voice is telling me that there was some interest. And it would be fascinating, truly fascinating, if the four people, the four guys, setting out on the canoe trip were uh were 2020 progressive wokester types you know just trying to be oh get god away yes from, and, and they had to deal with this stuff and, and then that that, that, that's such a great idea because one of the fun you know i'm sorry I, you can tell me if i should cut this out if you think it's too harsh but it kind of reminded me of like paul pelosi you know like how nice he was to mm-hmm. that guy like he just didn't have any concept of what monster he was he was had in his house um and that's what Ned Beatty was kind of like with these hillbillies. Like these guys, they were just yeah. too trusting. They were too, mm-hmm. you know, confident. That, and they got warned so many times by different people like, you know, don't go down that river. What are you doing? You know, are you insane? <laughs> and um, and they did it. So I think but that they would... weren't trying to be nice to them. They're trying to engage them with, you know, repartee and whatever. Well, but what Ned Beatty. What does require of us gentlemen? Well, we require that you get back in the woods and drop those pants. That's what we yeah, require. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so gross. Oh, God, poor guy. I mean, it was unimaginable horror is what that was. Um, mm-hmm. And if you look at the poster of Deliverance, it's so great. I mean, what a what a brilliant. And that year of movies was so great. It's like Godfather, Deliverance, and Cabaret, you know? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, wonderful. Yeah. You know, so... Um, the, the poster, describe the poster for people who aren't familiar. Okay, so the it's poster... A, yeah. It's an arm with a gun, right? Well, there's a couple of them, but the, the one that I thought was fascinating is the one with the big eye. And then the boat coming out of the eye and the eye is just terrified. And that look of terror in the eye is don't let me get butt fucked in the forest. <laughs> <laughs> like, to to men mm. back then and now to get raped like that is like, I mean, deliverance is so powerful that I, you know, I was thinking about mm-hmm. it out long after because the end of it is so incredible. Like John Voight is laying in bed and he knows he'll never be the same after that. Never. Mm. He's seen some shit. <laughs> so he yeah, lays in yeah. bed and he's with his wife. And then you see this this hand come up through the water and mm-hmm. it wakes him up. And then he, as he tries to go to sleep, you can just see his eyes darting around the room as the credits roll. They're just darting around the right. room. He's so scared. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. he'll never be the same. You know, he's now he knows. And that's sort of what life was like pre-Manson murders. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. that still to this day is still one of the most horrific 
unpredictable, bizarre, unexplainable things that could have ever have happened in American culture. Like, so uh, what, I, you know, the the, 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 end, the events of Deliverance. Are you talking? No, about? I'm talking about or, the Manson what? murders. The Manson. Oh, the Manson. Murder. Sure. Yeah. Manson, yeah. And and Deliverance yeah. to me is like a movie that's sort of like what it's like before and after the Manson murders. Like, you know, you're you just you just have a different perception of reality before and after that. You know. Um, it wasn't, I don't think it was about the Manson murders, but I'm just saying like, it, it was about people who just were ignorant to, to the true dangers out there for them. Um, and I mean, it was that guy all twisted up that one guy who gets crumpled up of the water. And then he's like, in these branches and his arms, you know, and, and they just barely get out of that because the cops are on their mm-hmm. trail. You know, the cop lets them go mm-hmm. just barely. They almost get stuck in some. Can you imagine if they got stuck in the prison up there? What that would be like? Well, the the senior marshal or policeman is played by James Dickey, the author of the book Deliverance. Oh, and you can what, what's fascinating about it is that he he knows something untoward went down. He can smell it. Yeah, it's obvious. But he can't make it stick in terms of evidence or confessions or anything. He just knows something. But he's just going to say, all right, listen, don't come back here. Again. Don't come back here. Don't again. come back. Here. Yeah. That yeah. was just great. What a genius. What a amazing film. Um, like yeah. a, a rare instance where the book and the film are both equally great. Um, so yeah. anyway, that getting back to Banshees of Inishir and Banshees is is a movie that is 100% on the level of Parable. And if you see it as a literal film, which I think a lot of people do, because apparently it's not very well liked um, by people. Uh, I see on the, the ratings, it's get like three stars or something like, it's not very enjoyable. I think a lot of that has to do with just what people are living through right now. And they're just not wanting to see something like that. You know, it's just too visceral. It's too painful. It's too hard. For me, I never took it literally. I was always looking at it in terms of metaphor and how funny it was and how it spoke about... It's not funny to me to self-mutilate. I don't care it's what... It's funny in a... in a, Well, that's like somebody saying, why did uh, Dennis Hopper tell uh, uh, Isabella Rossellini, you know, to spread her legs? And, then, you know, it's like... You know, the, the the things people do in movies are inexplicable, but in in my opinion, it was dark humor. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like he's saying, I literally have to, you know, because you're watching him going, he hates, he wants this guy to shut up so badly that he's threatening to cut off his fingers. And even that isn't enough. That and doesn't it's, make any sense. It's funny. It's it's funny for, for what the movie's about. The movie's about a guy... I, 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 I completely understand being sick of banality and just meandering nothing chit chat in a bar over over loggers and have that be defining have that define your life. I completely understand that. You understand that. Anybody who's looked beyond the banal and the potential of at least some depth and some recognition, maybe some creations and maybe some art in their life, we all are terrified of, of having a banal life and that i completely uh, relate to and it's meaningful to me and i completely understood what brendan brendan was where he was coming from his character but to take the step of mutilating not only just yourself in terms of just mutilating like cutting your feet off or cutting your hands off your finger but or your ear or whatever it's also destroying your ability to play music it's absolutely and that's ridiculous. the whole point that's why he does yeah. it, 
because all he wants to do is listen to the music in his head. And I don't know if you're one of these people. He wasn't busy in head. He's, he's able to play it. I see him. No, that's not in, right. In the tavern. He's happy. And he's and he's got. He's yeah, but he, but he, but he, he's, so many words. But he's in his quiet moments. And this is this is me. This is my life. Okay, my life is. I spend almost all my time in my own head, thinking and writing. That's me. That's my entire existence. And if I have someone around me and they're talking to me, not playing. <clears throat> not playing. Me, Sasha Stone. Okay. I spend well, okay. my time walking, thinking, writing in my head, thinking more, yep. like in total silence and solitude. And if someone's mm-hmm. with me, I have to turn that off and talk to them. I can't. I lose right. that. So if you're someone who's feels like you're compelled to think, he's always hearing music in his head, and he needs that kind of quiet to write this. But this guy is always coming up to him and talking to him, so he can't write his music anyway. So his choice is to either be kind and give up his music, or be an asshole and cut off his fingers and cause all this mayhem, you know, in this on this island and conflict. And hurt this man and hurt his sister and killed the donkey and do all this because his urge to create causes him. Well, I didn't mean to kill the donkey. The donkey no. tries to eat one of the fingers, and that's what causes the death of the poor animal. It's not like Brendan tries to kill him. He has a very perverse sense of humor, put it that way. But um, the, the, uh, I, I understood it so much, and I also could. I also could see it in a bigger picture way, like the 1972 way, which is that he really is writing, in my opinion, I'd love to ask him this if I could see him and talk to him, but he's really writing about our life right now because it's about people who are stuck together, who are who um, are in this ridiculous fighting situation, this polarization um, of one side that has mm. intelligence and culture and one side that doesn't. And one side that wants to shut out that and then all the warring stuff and all the fighting stuff that comes out of it. And, you know, it just comes down to that question of what's more important to be nice to people or to create great art. And I think at the end of the day for this movie and for Tar, you come down on the side of it's probably better to be nice to people. You know, because what art is so great that it it is worth hurting people over? You know, who is you're saying it's an either or situation in Banshees or in Tar? I didn't see that. It, well, no, the, the the rumination of both films is a rumination on is it better to be nice? What what counts more? What What is more valuable? How nice you are to someone or the work you leave behind? Both of these films, that's their central theme. Why do they have to be in opposition to each other? Um, they don't... I, see, I don't. I've never felt that way. There's not... Now, is it the tendency of Type A driven personalities of people who are focused on the creation of the art? They're not really in the world. They're kind of in their own heads, as you just described yeah. yourself. No, they they tend to be a little. You know, they, they're not necessarily a day at the beach in terms of say, socially speaking. They're either remote or they like to you know stay in their own space. They don't own, you know don't get social that much or when they are social maybe when they've had a couple of drinks and they're mean drunks you know there's all kinds of yeah exactly and and our past of the geniuses are littered Gauguin was a terrible man right he was an awful human being totally abusive Picasso wasn't exactly a walk in the park you know these guys are like and then we have this generation of 
little social justice warriors that are judging people on their past behavior and not on their art. Well, mm. both of these yeah. movies deal with that question, I think, in a really interesting mm-hmm. way. And you and I were talking about, um, we were talking about Life Lessons, that Scorsese movie that's short, because it was, yeah. it was about a guy who not only was abusive to women, but he was, he was like a vampire. Like he needed them to be his muse or he couldn't create that kind of art. Now I think that in Banshees, clearly the, I mean, neither, none of the characters are all particularly good people except maybe the sister, but like Uh Brendan Gleeson's not nice. And and Colin Farrell is nice, but he's not, you know, he does bad things. And, um, and the thing is, is that in, in life lessons, he, he can't paint unless he has this woman, this muse that he that will inspire him, that he works for, that you know keeps his drive going, and that's where he creates his best art. Uh, now Scorsese didn't write it; it was written by somebody else, I think. Right? Um, can't remember who wrote it, but whoever wrote it is the person who feels that way. Like some people really need a muse, and they they feel inspired mm-hmm. by a muse, and it it really makes them want to write and stuff. But in Banshees, Colin Farrell's the opposite of that. He's a succubus. He takes away that his desire to want to be anything or to want to do anything. And like you said, they're stuck on this island together. Um, but it to me, it's just, it's not both that movie and Tar and Deliverance are movies that don't answer questions. They just ask them. And they ask us to think about them and what we think about it. And, um, and they do it in an interesting way, in my opinion. Like, okay. I, I just don't think that these are movies that you should take literally, because if you do, then you're going to come up. I don't see how you don't take it literally. We're, I'm watching human beings on the planet Earth. I know it's kind of metaphorical, but even within the realm of a metaphor, it's ridiculous to to mutilate yourself if you're <laughs> angry about being made into a banal person. If you if, if, if Brendan Gleeson wanted to really do something about Colin Farrell, always saying let's chat and just talk about nothing. He would like come after him and say, "You wanted me to beat you up? I'm sick of you. I'm sick of your bland, banal bullshit." Well, I don't think it's beat the shit out of you. I don't think. First of all, I understand. Well, first of all, I don't think it's my job or anybody's job to make you like this movie. If you don't like it, you don't like it. That's your business. You know, it's not my business. I don't really care. Don't like it. I'm saying it's ridiculous in a universal sense. It's absurd. Well, that's where we part ways because I think it's okay for you to say you didn't like it. But I don't think it's right for you to completely condemn it as a as a work of art because so many people got so much out of it, including me. I loved it. It was sad. It's sad to me, but I can really relate to every single character in that movie. I can relate to all of them. I think they're all four different aspects of Martin McDonough's personality. And I think he wrote it that way. I think he wrote the artist. I think he wrote the dumb guy who's always bugging people. I think he wrote himself as the, you know, as the woman who wants to get off the island and get the hell out of there. You know, I think he he put himself in these these uh, character shoes and tried to write this story about these people stuck on this island and how come they're doomed? They're doomed because, you know, that witch is on there and she's telling them that they're doomed. But I also could Sarah really. Condit isn't doomed. She leaves the island. Yeah, she unless you leave, that's your only hope is to leave. They have no hope mm-hmm. on there. Like you said, they have no hope. There's no women, really. They can't mate. They can't have kids. They have no futures. Mm-hmm. So they got to get off the island. They got to get out. Um, but I th- I found it fascinating. And 
I especially related to the undercurrent of animals in that movie, which really mattered a lot. Like he says to the priest, you know, in the confessional, um, he's talking about the donkey and why he feels bad about that. And the priest says something like, you know, well, I don't think God cares if you're, you're mean to animals. And he said, well, maybe that's where it went all wrong. Maybe God should care if we're mean to animals. And he's so right. Like, that's just such a great line. And, um, and animals, okay. you know, make the difference in that movie. Because if you are kind to animals, to a lot of people, to myself included, that redeems you as a human being. And if you're not, it condemns you. And that's the line mm-hmm. for me. You know, if you're a, if you're a terrible, I mean, I, I go on TikTok, man, and it's just, I, I have to stop using that app. Because I don't want to keep seeing all these mean things, you know, these mean, because it just makes me want to see the human race completely wiped off the face of the earth, you know, that that people Mm. would be mean to animals. There's no cause for that, you know. It's the only good thing that we can do in life as human beings is to not inflict pain onto little creatures, you know. Yes, of course. So anyway, I I don't think that we disagree all that much about it. I just think that our, our pleasure... Uh, our a level of enjoyment of it is different. Like I enjoyed it, and you didn't, but we both seem to understand the movie. Now let's get on to this stupid Judd Apatow thing, shall we? Yes. Okay. I've I've just been uh, handed a uh, I've found a, uh, a URL with the entire letter and all the signatories, and basically what they're saying is the New York Times uh, has uh, been conflicted. And and not saying the right thing, the right woke thing, as far as uh, uh, trans people are concerned. And as you have pointed out, and others, it, it makes clear in the Hollywood Reporter article, the problem that they have is with a particular columnist, a sensible Republican. Now I'm losing his name. David What's French. Name? David French. David French. And he's uh, uh, written a, an op-ed piece that they hate and they think is awful. And they're basically saying you can't be... You know, like the New York Times, uh, you know, reporting in a kind of "quote unquote" fair or neutral or both sides way. You got to be on the team. Yeah, screw this that. Is not working for. It. Who if are you're these... not on the team? You're you're bad, and oh, we're going to fuck with you and make your life a little complicated because you're not on the team. So that's it. That's I what they're saying. I don't less. get it at all. I think you know the New York Times was trying to diversify its columnists a little bit. And mm-hmm. they, that's why they brought mm-hmm. him on, you know, um, right. and people were really amazed that they did, even though this guy mm-hmm. is like, he's like a regular on MSNBC. You know what I mean? Like he's, mm. he's not in any way a pro, a pro he's a very compassionate. I don't even he's not know. A Trumper, he's a sensible, classic Republican is what you're saying, right? I don't even know. More I mean, I think he's even more to the left than a, your typical classical Republican. Like, I don't even, when I listen to him, I, he sounds like what Democrats used to be like. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. he's right. just, and I don't know what his trans column was. Do you? Like, I don't think I even read it. I haven't even read it yet. Yeah. So but I know t- what they're saying. They're saying, we won't tolerate this. You can't be the New York Times as a reporting organ, you've got to be on the progressive woke. We're changing things and, you know, no more cruelty and putting trans people in danger and you're putting trans people in danger. And it's bullshit. They're just they're It's a cult. It's a crazy fucking cult. And they won't listen. They won't get back off. You know, it's like, I don't know what to say to them. All right. But he, I know what they're about. 
He joined in January 3rd, 2023. The headline is David French joins the New York Times as an opinion columnist. So now I go on here and his first thing, <laughs> the law is closing in on Trump. Uh-huh, sure. And then mm-hmm. Med, men need purpose more than respect. Uh, let's see if I can find anything on. Uh, well, there must be something he wrote about the trans community in particular. That's what they're upset about. That's what yeah, we have, we have I know. I can't on. find it here. It says okay. we, we disagree on a lot of things except the danger of anti-critical race theory laws. Okay. So he's right on the left. Okay. Uh, the pro-life mm-hmm. movement made a bar. Like he's basically on here to dump on Trump. So I'm not sure where the trans stuff is. I don't know where it's mm. cut. Let me just see if it's on this one here. Mm. Uh, oh, shit. They're paywalling me, even though I'm a subscriber. Can you look at the... Really? New York Times? No, I'm, I am a subscriber. I just don't know. I don't want to sit here and log mm. in. Uh, how can I find this? Is it is it the Andrew Sullivan? No, that's August. He does an interview with Andrew Sullivan on here. Um, yes. Okay. Well, how guess... long has French been, been with him? Um just we since, know how that, yeah, how, just how... just since January third. Okay. So not long, but all right. I'm signing. So there must in. be something that he that he wrote and which was published that obviously made them freak out. And I don't know what it is, but me either. I'm, I'm looking here. The key thing. I'm looking. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe let's look in here. Men need a purpose more than. So far as I can tell, he's not writing anything about this. They couldn't be talking about his private writing, could they? Like what he writes on his own site? Know. Oh, my God. What if that's what it is? What's, what, what do you mean private? Private in what sense? Well, he has his own website. He's on a... He's in the... He's, well, it's not private, obviously, if it's online. It's not no, but private. I mean, what I'm saying I'm, is this might even be just that... Mm-hmm. This might even just be that he's... Um, that he's, they don't like his thoughts, not even that he wrote anything. Mm, you know okay. what I mean? Let me just see. NY Times, David French, transgender. Because I haven't heard him say anything about that. Okay. Um, uh, oh, it says that they're mad that they hired him. Because in January, yes. right after they hired him, Glad is says... Appalling that the New York Times hired trans, tra- hired David French. Transphobe? Are they calling me a transphobe or something? Or well, they're already what? mad at him. If you just if you just search this, you'll see that uh, that they're already mad at him. But but he didn't write anything about it on there. They're just mm-hmm. mad that they hired him and that he's writing on there. They're fanatics. They're fanatics, and they're. Really, I think truly awful people. I mean, they're, I, they're they are. terrorists. I mean, they're, he's if they're, they're going to Chinese cultural revolution fanatics waving the red book and saying, you you know, this is something we won't tolerate, and we've got to shame these people. We've got to beat them up. You know, I, I'm just I'm I'm confused because he's mm-hmm. he's this guy is like he couldn't be nicer. You know what I mean? Like he is so non-threatening. I don't mm-hmm. understand how it is that. Um, that they could be this mad about a guy like that, you know? Um, so Incidentally, I'm looking at the list of the whole signers. It's I, I have the URL, which I'll send to you, but it's everybody that signed this list, this letter, you know, saying that, uh, you know, some of us trans, non-binary, or gender non-conforming, we resent the fact that our work 
but not our person is good enough for the paper of record. Uh, some of us are cis, and we have seen those we love discover and fight for their true selves, and blah, blah, blah. It's, God, it's so propagandistic. Anyway, there is a list. Anybody who's on that list is not a critic. I mean, not a, a uh, journalist and shouldn't, shouldn't call themselves a journalist. Going along with this, this is really amazing that they're trying to bully the New York Times into changing its mm-hmm. coverage. I'm not even sure what they're mad about. The, only the people on the right say that trans people don't exist, right? Certainly not David French. I mean, if anything, they're objecting to the, the, the uh, uh, medical interventions on children, which is sterilizing a lot of them. Which know? I completely agree with. I think it's horrible what they're doing to kids. And I think kids should be totally out of the conversation and out of the operating room and out of the whole discussion no. until they've reached, you know, 11, 12, you know, puberty, somewhere in there. And they then have to they go through puberty. And then I... Yeah, I understand because, you know, my daughter, most of her close friends are trans and she had a trans friend in high school who was so obviously trans, like Mm -hmm. she was obviously a boy, like it was there was no question. And her mother was very conservative and didn't want her to to do it and never, Mm -hmm. you know, had a really hard time with it. She wasn't one of these crazy virtue signaling moms now. She was very much Mm -hmm. a cautious, but she waited till she was 18 but when she was 18, she became a boy and she's so much happier because some okay. people, some people really are transgender, you know, but it's, it's yeah, they are. Sure. It, I understand be, that. it's becoming like a contagion, but if they're messing with kids, uh, reproductive abilities and they're, they're doing things to them that are going to cause permanent damage before they're old enough to really understand, then in the mm-hmm. future, there's going to be lawsuits. They're going to be looking at us and saying, why didn't you protect us? How did this go on for so long? Well, I'm just going to pull mm-hmm. out that letter and I'm going to say, "This, see this? These are the people. This is what we were up against. And I'm not even yeah. on, this isn't even my fight. Like, I didn't really care. I've just been dragged into it because the left has become so insane. And so, yeah. like, I don't really personally care. But yes, if kids are being sterilized when they're too young, you know, like, that's not right. So yep. something somebody has to do something. And there are all these reasonable people who are just doing the work, the investigative journey. There was a really good, very good investigative piece in the New York Times about it. You know, if, if that's your thing, like you have to like imagine if in the middle of the Salem witch trials, they said, mm-hmm. you know, people were saying and they were so convinced, so 100 percent sure that these were witches and that when these girls freaked out and accused these people that they were 100% guilty and there was nothing they could do. They hanged 20 people in Salem. And at the uh-huh. end of it, they want this guy, Thomas Mall, who was a Quaker, wanted to write yeah. this story. He wrote a book called, he used to believe in witches. And through the witch trials, he realized that something was going on that wasn't right. And he wrote a book called Truth Held Forth and Maintained. And they busted him and they threw him in jail for a year. And he mm-hmm. fought, and he he had a trial, and they he defended himself, and he and he said, "No way, I could write. I have a right to write what I think is true." And that guy is responsible for the First Amendment. He was yeah. he's the one who inspired freedom of the press. You know, you don't bully journalists. That's the one thing you shouldn't mm-hmm. do. I mean, who do they think right. they are? These people, like what? delusional you know hysteria are they under that they think this is the appropriate path they they feel that unless the new york times is a 
team member, a cult member, a fellow member following all the, you know, doing all the things that they feel is the only way to see things, that they're somehow betraying liberalism, they're, they're somehow certainly betraying the legacy or the potential of people who are trans. They, they feel that they're doing something awful. And it's it's really um, it's really awful what these people are, are saying, it, I think. It, it isn't right. I mean, it's you can't yeah. just because you have intimidated people into silence doesn't mean you've changed their mind. You know, you mm-hmm. haven't necessarily changed their mind. You've just got them to be too afraid to talk to you about it. Is that what they want? The emperor's new clothes, you know? Do they want people having to live? Because that's going to lead to a huge backlash. And it's going to be much worse than what David French would ever imagine or write about. David French is a decent, reasonable fellow. He's, He's too nice for me. You know what I mean? Like, he's too much in the middle for me. Like, I would prefer, I prefer people who take harder lines and tougher stances on certain subjects. But... I've always found him to be a decent guy, a loving man, you know, and, and it's just not right mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. witch hunt that guy. God, they're insane. Right. So here we are. And I, I don't think um, it's fair for, for them to make it out that if you don't go all the way with all of this, then you're homophobic or you're transphobic and you're not on board with LGBTQ issues. You have to have you have to be on board with all of it. You know, uh, I think that's weird, too. And right. it's, it's not fair, you know, um, that they'll put you on the other line and say you you are harming the LGBTQ community, you know. If you're just if you're just against, you know, a a free you know a, a free for all on drugs and and medical interventions on young people, you know. Well, I think um, that when we post this, I uh, have to have the full linkage to everything. That was uh, that's impert- that's pertinent to this All right. story, so people at least have a, a basic, yeah. you know, understanding. Okay, I guess we've done enough yeah. today. We've done enough damage. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll, uh, um, all right, nice talking with you. Okay, you too. Okay. All right, bye bye.
direction.